Hey everyone, I'm Alyssa. I use she, her, hers pronouns, and we are back. We are black. <laughs> We're off on break. <laughs> That's a throwback. Um, so, the quick news I am officially ABD. That means I have completed all the requirements for my PhD except the dissertation. And so I am just thankful for the time that we had to rest mm-hmm. and to really focus on my schoolwork. Mm-hmm. But I'm really, really excited to be back on the mic, seeing Brendan. How you doing? Oh. Wagwan. Wagwan. <laughs> um, let me stop pretending like I know what that means. Uh, hey, y'all. <laughs> I'm Brendan, and I also use she, her pronouns. And yeah, it feels good to be back. Um, Gemini season is coming in through with a vengeance. Let me just boop, 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 say boop. that um, <laughs> we're back. And it's also my season. So I guess, you know, what else to expect but a little chaos. Um, mm. If you don't know me, then you don't know I am a Gemini, the sign that y'all love to hate. <laughs> and I'm finally like glad that we're like finally able to get to our long awaited episode on abolition and we've got our long one ahead of us so we're going to keep the intro real short today yes 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 but before we hop into it we want to give a huge thanks to everyone who has donated to the podcast or engaged with us on social media we were on break but we were still hearing from you all on instagram and twitter very heartwarming Mm -hmm. i'm an aquarius so i pretend i'm not sentimental but i am (laughs) (laughs) y'all care about what y'all want to care about um (laughs) yes but we care about people and you all are people so care about you (laughs) so if you would like to donate to the podcast you can visit zorasdaughters.com that's our website be sure to follow us on instagram at zorasdaughters and twitter at zoras underscore daughters we actually have some exciting updates coming soon mm-hmm. so be on the lookout so we're gonna we're gonna saute jump right into it <laughs> brendan what's the word for today today's word is discipline so Ooh, you heard it here <laughs> first maybe not first maybe second or third time but we are bringing back Foucault or fuki as i like to call him um and we're talking about his widely cited text, Discipline and Punish, The Birth of the Prison, which was published in 1975. And in this text, Foucault traces the genealogy of the production of the prison. So this book actually has four parts um, called Torture, Punishment, Discipline, and Prison. And in this segment, we're really going to focus on the discipline and, and the prison section. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the discipline, the discipline part. So disciplinary power, as Foucault explains it, is distinguished from absolutist or sovereign power. So that's Mm -hmm. power held by a monarch and judicial power. This disciplinary power is not perceived by us as oppressive or constraining, like the kind of external coercive power that a sovereign might hold. Discipline is a force, of course, but it's the internalization of that force Mm -hmm. to the point that we normalize and accept the system's that are constraining us. So disciplinary power is used to create what Foucault calls docile bodies. And these docile bodies are ideal for for the military and for the emerging, at the time that he's talking about, industrialized world. Because it allows 
It allows those in power, it, it, it allows these systems to exert power over people without actually having to take action. And so in order to explain what he means by discipline or disciplinary power, Foucault turns to English philosopher Jeremy Bentham and his concept of the panopticon, which is something that he designed in the 18th century. Yes, the 18th century. <laughs> so the panopticon is a layout of a prison where guards are in a tower in the center of a circular prison, and then they essentially maintain surveillance over all of the inmates in that way. Mm. But this layout isn't just an architectural structure. It also in turn structures the consciousness of imprisoned people. So they can't see into the guard tower. They never know when they're being watched. And so when they're at risk of punishment. And so when you can't see the eyes, the eyes are everywhere, right? You know? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you regulate your behavior just in case you're being watched. So that would be the difference between an external sovereign power that exercises power over another, disciplinary power is then the way that you regulate your body and your actions. Mm. So as an example, I was a girl. <laughs> Once upon a time, it was a long time ago. that <laughs> long ago. Uh. It was pretty long ago. <laughs> but I was a girl growing up in a culture where it's considered unladylike. Uh, among other things, there's some very other odd connotations. Mm -hmm. um, so it's considered unladylike, we'll say, to sit with your knees apart. And so I was told not to do that, or I received you know, weird looks if I did. And so eventually, no one needed to tell me to stop doing that. And so it's gotten to the point where now I might even be at home by myself, watching TV, chilling, and if I'm sitting down, I'll feel like, oh, I should cross my legs or keep mm. my knees together or something. Mm. So I won't sit like in the man spreading <laughs> position because I'm like, oh, I can't do that. So I will, I will then like discipline myself, right? That's discipline. I regulate my body because I've internalized that policing of femininity and I enforce those norms on myself. And that's basically in order to avoid punishment. And it may not be a physical punishment, but it's like social kinds, like teasing or getting weird looks. And so it's something that seems innocuous, but it's actually the way patriarchy exerts power over women in very insidious ways. Yeah, I actually do the same thing. Um, but I just, which is, kind of goes along with the song that I started with and stopped earlier. Um, <laughs> Which don't look that song up, but you know, once upon a time, not long ago, I was a hoe, and that was like <laughs> it. So cut it off. But yeah, like that's um, in church. We were taught a lot about how girls slash women, because we were always already women, mm -hmm. um, present themselves. And you know, if I didn't have my legs shut, then the prayer cloth was coming. You know, <laughs> one of the sisters was coming with the prayer cloth, cover my legs, no matter how long my dress was. So. Yeah, that I definitely still deal with that to this day. Um, but we could also say another version or the modern version of the Panopticon is actually like surveillance technology, like cameras, or even our own phones or emails. So if you have a smartphone, you have a piece of surveillance technology that you carry around with you everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. uh, and after Edward Snowden, we know that any of these things could be used to surveil us at any time. And we just have to trust, quote, right? We have to trust that the state is not going to abuse this power. And 
we know it is, right? Especially mm-hmm. if you are Black. So an excellent text to dive into surveillance and it, its connections to Blackness would be Simone Brown's Dark Matters. So make sure you check that out. Yeah, yeah. I think it just it just really goes to show that instead of spending all of this money on surveillance and controlling us, we could actually just spend it on creating communities where harming other people mm. is unthinkable. Why do that? Why though? Why, right? Why like, do that when you can make money? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know? But it's just like the same way that prevention is better than cure. We could be focusing mm. on making people's lives good instead of keeping watch of people doing things that we've constructed as bad. But, right. you know, but again, right. why? Why? When you why? can make money off of all of all those things, right? And so I think that's literally it. So Foucault also analyzes the prison, demonstrating that the prison is actually part of an entire carceral system that's just not limited to people's bodies being in a cell. So the carceral system includes schools, it includes the military, hospitals, factories, the Department of Social Services, and all of them operate best when they're filled with these docile bodies, which is what Foucault calls them. So at the same time that they produce these docile bodies, so they produce the, the structures that discipline us, right? they also create the idea of the delinquent. So this is the person who has to exist in order for there to be a standard for there to be something called good or law abiding. And the delinquent allows for the good person or the upstanding citizen to exist and to be judged by. So not only are these institutions sites of disciplinary power and punishment, but many of the people in them function essentially as police officers. So I hate to do it to y'all. And I got friends who are involved in all of these categories. So I love you all dearly, but doctors, teachers, therapists, social workers, like all of these good occupations, right, are implicated in a carceral system and are extensions of policing um, and policing institutions. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that, you know, these jobs in and of themselves are mm-hmm. bad, right? Like, of course we need doctors, but I think that the role that doctors and teachers have to play, mm-hmm. which are often ones of surveillance and ones of like required reporting and all these kinds of things, they do then feed into the carceral system. Yeah. And so it's the roles that, that the state requires you to play and not necessarily your job in and of itself. But all of that to say, society just conditions us to be the police. Mm-hmm. Like, we the police. (laughs) (laughs) We police ourselves and we police others. And carceral logics are embedded in our society from how students are pushed out of schools to the ways that disabled people are excluded from society Mm -hmm. based on the way that we build, the way that we structure schooling, the way that we structure buildings, like all of those kinds of things are meant to exclude the quote unquote delinquent. And so in that sense, change is something that needs to change us, right? Like we need to see that no one is disposable, no one is expendable and stop being the police. (laughs) Period. Also, when I said teachers, professors were also included in that, even though not all professors are teachers. I just wanted to put that out there. Um, (laughs) 
Um, the last thing that I'll say about all of this, which I'm going to use the word interesting as a placeholder for what, how I really want to describe this. I think typical is more along the lines of, um, what I mean, but Fuki, like many other, um, of his contemporary counterparts excludes slavery from his analysis of discipline and punishment, uh, which is like, typical, right? For French, mm-hmm. for the French white men to not think about what they were doing in the colonies or had done in the colonies as something that influences their theorization of things. Um, but there are lots of scholars today who actually connect the plantation and the transatlantic slave trade to the criminal punishment system. Um, and for me personally, you know, I'm not going to say that nobody else has said this, but I would go so far as to say that like the modern disciplinary practices were actually perfected on the slave. Mm. So thinking about like how enslaved Africans were separated by sex before boarding slave ships. And, you know, we have our men's prisons and our women's prisons, right. That are people judged by what they think your genitals are right before they place you somewhere, their bodies were stripped, their cavities were searched, things were inserted into these cavities, right. If they did not comply with the orders of their captors, they were placed in solitary confinement and or killed. Um, And if you've ever been to Ghana and been to like the slave castles, they actually show you the solitary confinement room Hmm. that they had that has no windows, no doors. So there's no way for air to get into the room. Um, so if you did not comply, you died, right? Wow. And that it kind of mirrors a lot of how solitary confinement functions today. Enslaved Africans were separated from their communities and they were treated as, as disposable objects. So they had a value, even though they were consistently devalued and dehumanized. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they were, they made it to the Americas, right? Their bodily autonomy continued to be taken from them. So if we think about that as a mirror to when people are released, but are still entangled in this system, right? Where they're not mm-hmm. allowed to, to get housing. They're not allowed to vote. They're not allowed to live their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not going to go too deep into the parallel, but we're going to have recommended readings for folks to, to like really dive into this. And I think it's good for us to segue to what we're reading today. So Alyssa, what are we reading today? We are reading. <laughs> <laughs> We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice by Miriam Kaba. I am thrilled. <laughs> I was thrilled. thrilled. It was great. <laughs> you look, this, um, though this is not like a standard academic text, it was lovely to read. So I think that's probably why it was lovely to read. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't have to decipher what's being said. Big facts. Um, <laughs> Anyway, um, Miriam Kaba is a wonderful person. She is an organizer, an educator, and curator, and has been active in the anti-gender-based violent movement since 1989. And her work focuses on ending violence, dismantling the prison industrial complex, transformative justice, and supporting youth leadership development. She studied sociology mm, uh, at McGill University <laughs> City College of New York and Northwestern University is currently pursuing a degree in library and informational science. She is the founder and director of Project NIA, a grassroots organization with a vision to end youth incarceration and has co-founded multiple organizations and projects over the years. She was a member of Insight, Women of Color Against Violence, 
and she co-founded and currently organizes with the Survived and Punished Collective and is a founding member of the Just Practice Collaborative. She was a researcher in residence on race, gender, sexuality, and criminalization at the Social Justice Institute of the Barnard Center for Research on Women from 2018 to 2020. She's been writing about her work since 2010 on her blog, Prison Culture, is an active board member of the Black Scholar Journal. I think just, you know, reading her bio, Mm -hmm. she's actually done a lot of work with universities. She's been a researcher in residence and other kinds of positions like that. So that is just to tell you all, just to let you all know, you don't need to be a professor to be involved in academia or to be ivory tower adjacent if you are so interested so just just a little highlight underscore there for you all but as a result this is not your typical academic book or article Mm -hmm. and so we're not going to read it the same way that we read it for you all the same way that we usually would so we've actually pulled out three motifs they're essentially terms that we felt push us to think more deeply about X topic, and in particular about understanding abolition. Mm-hmm. So actually in the book, I think she mentions that she dislikes binaries, but I actually find that found that the, you know, compare and contrast and like trying to parse out the nuance of some of these words that we're juxtaposing was really helpful for, you know, understanding how, how we get to the heart of like, why we've ended up in a society where we can't imagine a world without prisons. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that prisons are new, prisons in the way they exist now are new, and they were a reform, right? So the terms aren't aren't meant to be definitive, but it's just really a way to get you all, the listener, you know, thinking about the terms that we take for granted. But yeah, first let's, let's maybe jump in and like explain what she means by abolition, because, you know, she says we should always identify what kind of abolition we're talking about. And in this case, it's PIC abolition. Right, because a lot of y'all are out here, like, using abolition willy-nilly, and we want to say up front, right, abolition is not based upon how you feel, you know, it's not based upon what you feel it means, but we're going to get exactly to, like, where you should place your feelings in regards to abolition later. Kaba defines the principles of the prison industrial complex abolition as one um, prison industrial complex abolition calls for the elimination of policing, imprisonment, and surveillance. Two, or rejects the expansion and breadth or scope or legitimation of all aspects of the prison industrial complex. So these are things like increased in surveillance technology, policing sentencing and imprisonment of all sorts. And we'll get to more examples of that later. Also, the prison industrial complex abolition refuses logics of premature death and organized abandonment, which are the state's modes of reprisal and punishment. So she emphasizes that you can advocate for these things and that's fine, right? She's like, that's y'all over there. But you are not an abolitionist if you advocate for any of these things. So if you want to call yourself an abolitionist, you must be committed to the idea that incarceration is never, like never, 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 never an appropriate solution for interpersonal harm, even when it's R. Kelly, right? Even when it's Harvey Weinstein, 
even when it's Bill Cosby, even when it's someone who harms you. When that's tough, it's, it's tough. And she absolutely acknowledges that, but we'll, we'll also get to that later. But when I was reading all of this, it got me thinking about a tweet that went around after Amy Cooper, if you all remember last year, the Central Park Karen who <laughs> called the, who called the police on Christian Cooper while he was bird watching. And she was charged with filing a false report. And so someone tweeted something along the lines of, Amy Cooper has been charged with a crime that carries jail time. Are we still abolitionist? And I remember feeling so conflicted about it because I thought, I know that a criminal record is harmful and prison is violent, but what other recourse do we have to make us feel Mm. like Christian Cooper got justice? And I think Miriam Cabo would be like, abolition is not about your fucking feelings. Period. <laughs> Period. <laughs> like, <laughs> what we were looking for is emotional satisfaction, right? Like, we wanted mm-hmm. to feel like justice was done because mm-hmm. at the time we were angry. And emotional satisfaction is not justice, right? Like, Amy Cooper lost her job. Consequence. She publicly apologized. She took accountability. People were also at the time, I think, making calls to have her banned from the park, which I think if you're like, if you're thinking like, okay, she shouldn't go to jail, but she should face consequences, that might make sense. But then if you dig deeper into what that produces Mm -hmm. and you really try to sit with what it means to not increase police surveillance then that kind of consequence would actually reinforce the need for police and surveillance. Because even if no one ever called the police on her and she was banned from the park and whatever, people would police the park, they'd police her. And then at at which point you start sliding into like punishment instead of a consequence. Yeah, exactly. I I think that's a really important point, right? Um, We have to think about ways to get justice or even if we're trying to move towards you know, reform where it is necessary that actually doesn't fortify the prison industrial complex. So in the book, she calls it non-reformist reforms. And I think that she's referring to Joy James when she names it as such. And for those of you who are not involved in abolitionist organizing, non-reformist reforms are, are reforms that don't expand or enlarge the power of the police or policing institutions. So these reforms would be, for example, we are going to defund the police, right? We're going Mm. to decrease the police budget and take that money and give it to educational systems or to the public library. Usually reforms say the police are fucked up and here's what we're going to do to solve it. We're just giving them more money to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, more money for them to buy robot dogs to terrorize us. I don't think that that's going to help. But (laughs) let me get off my uh, Black Mirror (laughs) horse here. Your Black Mirror dog. Black Mirror dog, which I was, I thought it was a roach for the longest. And then someone was like, Brendan, it's a dog. It's not a roach. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, okay. That's not there, not there. uh, (laughs) I think when people think about abolition and what makes it really untenable for them is you know what people always ask right what do you do if someone breaks into your house what will you do about the rapist and you know the 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 pedophiles and all these other people 
And one thing that I would say um, to all of that is most of the people that you know who do those things are in jail already. And the existence of prisons and jails don't deter them from doing things that harm people. So let's, let's, let's start with that. And then let's also move to thinking about, okay, what is an abolitionist response to a question like that? And abolitionists say, we're not just focusing on deconstructing this prison industrial complex system and leaving like a vacuum, right? It's deconstructing while also building something else. So the Mm -hmm. response to that might be, what can we do as a community to make sure that no one feels the need to break into my house, right? It might be, we might need to have some kind of welfare system or mutual aid system, or if someone needs something, who in the community can be able to provide that? And that's antithetical to kind of a capitalist mindset. Kaba addresses this through another's words, right? She says that people think this kind of response is kind of like a rhetorical evasion, right? People are not really trying to answer your question, but it's actually part and parcel of abolitionist principles, right? That these processes be discussed and decided in community. So what one community does to address harm might not be if you go across the street to another community, what they do. And I want to underscore that in most places, in the U.S., police are not a part of the communities that they police, right? Especially if you are a Black person and you live in a segregated community. Most, nine times out of 10, the police officer does not live in that same community with you. And even if the officer is Black, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're also a part of your community. All right, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So let's talk about our first pair, punishment versus consequences. And even before we get there, we're going to have to parse out the difference between harm and crime. Okay, so harm is the direct result of violence. Everyone harms, everyone has experienced harm. Crime, on the other hand, is something that's socially and legally constructed, and it can be violent. Okay, it doesn't mean that it always is, but it's just something that has been written into a law by some person who says that this is a crime, whether it's violent Mm -hmm. is up for debate. And so there are a lot of harmful things that can happen that aren't considered crimes. For example, if I kick Brendan in the shin, (laughs) I, (laughs) I'd have to reach down low to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'm short, y'all. I'm short. I'm slightly above average in height. (laughs) Okay, so if I kick Brendan in the shin, right, I've committed a violent act that harms her. Now, it doesn't become a crime unless Brendan charges me with assault. And then there's this whole legal process about whether my kick will actually be seen as a crime, right? The criminal legal system sometimes punishes crime, but almost never addresses harm. And so the perpetrator of harm can face consequences without being punished. And so Kaba does a really great job of explicating that. And for her, punishment is something that's extreme. It's cruel, it reinforces a cycle of suffering and Mm -hmm. of harm. And so punishment is really about inflicting pain. And that can be physical pain, but it can also be psychological pain. And so when you want someone to hurt, that's punishment. Consequences, on the other hand, are things that you face as a result of an action that you took. 
It's like the logical continuation, the logical result of some kind of action that you took. Mm -hmm. So as an example, Amy Cooper lost her job. That was a consequence, right? That company, they believed that she should not be in contact with their clients who may or may not be racialized because she inflicted harm on another, on a black person. Now, punishment, on the other hand, would be if the state took away her ability to provide for her basic needs entirely and indefinitely. And that's something that happens with incarceration. Right. So in line with the example, a punishment um, for Alyssa kicking me, um, stooping down to kick me, would be um, me being like, oh, Alyssa, you know, I'm going to take your foot away. Right. And it's like, no, um, how does me taking her foot away address the fact that my shin hurts? Right. There's no there's no real logical connection there. It would just make me if if I were in that frame of mind, right, feel better. But I would I would never do that. Right. Like uh, an appropriate consequence for Alyssa kicking me would be me expressing Alyssa that really hurt me. And um, I'm going to ask, can you buy me some ice to put on my shin so that I can, you know, continue to go about my life, right? So one of the things that we want to continue to underscore here is that consequences are logically connected to the harm. So punishment is just, it is really truly has no true connection to the harm that's done. And punishment also serves as kind of a lesson for others. So when others are punished by the state, right, it's, it's seen as, oh, other people will observe that this person receives X sentence and they won't do this anymore, right? That's the crime deterrent. The deterrent um, theory. Argument. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't actually focus on the relationship between the person or people harmed and the one who commits the harm. So when we punish people, right, we don't actually repair relationships, which are at the heart of what causes harm, right? Or at least mm. Consequences actually teach us lessons while punishments multiply the harm and they usually center some type of revenge. And so I want you all to just, you know, close your eyes and and take a little thinking exercise here. Well, not close your eyes if you're driving, but, you know, (laughs) think about it like this, right? Like, have you ever really sat down and thought about prison sentences and thought about if they make logical sense, right? Why would someone who uses crack cocaine to escape their hellish life or to cope with the effects of oppression or just to try it because, you know, their friend was like, try this one time, right? Why would it make sense to sentence that person to seven years in prison, right? Why not, why devote resources, right, to forcefully alienating that person with taxpayer dollars when we could actually divert those same dollars into community-based solutions that alleviate people's suffering, right, what they're trying to escape by using those drugs, right? Why would someone who does not have the resources to clothe and to feed their children be arrested, right, and their children shuffled into the foster system? Like, why is that something that we think is logical, Wouldn't it make more sense to take the resources that we funnel into these systems and give them to the actual family so they can survive? One of the things that this book really highlights is that we've been conditioned to believe that punishment through prison and jails are the best or is the best solution for undesirable people and or people that we label as, quote, criminals, right? But incarceration and state surveillance are not, are a state surveillance, excuse me, are not apt consequences for the effects of living in a white supremacist, capitalist, ableist world. 
Yeah, I think those examples are ones that people can wrap their head around when it comes to when it comes to abolition, especially if they're black and they've seen the effects of the drug war on their mm -hmm. families and their communities. I think that it's harder for people who are new to PIC abolition to really apply that to a person who robs you at knife point mm -hmm. or something, you know, something like that, something that happens like probably on a daily basis in New York city, right? Like people, people get mugged all the time. Mm -hmm. The mugger. <laughs> <laughs> Another reference y'all to a professor of ours, a beloved professor. Speaking of abolition. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening? Come on. All right, there we go. All right, so people think, well, they're a danger to society. They harmed me. Why should he be out on the streets? And then I think that there are, you know, a few angles to respond to that from. One way to approach it is to ask, well, what's happening at a societal or community level that this person needs to rob and threaten mm -hmm. people? And how can we change that? And then another way to go about it is to draw attention to the way that there's a tendency to use the extreme to prove the necessity of prison. So people will be like, what about serial killers? Well, how many serial killers are there? How many police actually capture serial killers and yeah, how many police like, officers are serial killers <laughs> oh brutal i mean but anyway sorry big just... facts big facts but i mean i think i think in the book she says that uh, the the average average police officer will make one one felony arrest a year so the rest of the time they're basically just going around and ticketing people mm -hmm. for like minor crimes which again are constructed yeah, and things like that. So parking on the wrong side of the street is a crime. Exactly. Yeah. Like, don't y'all have better things to do? But the thing that's, I mean, that's something that I remember my mom saying, like whenever she'd get a ticket, she'd be like, don't these people have better things to do? And the answer is no, they don't. No, they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. <laughs> so, you know, people tend to use these extreme examples to prove the necessity of prisons and police when these everyday instances, like me kicking Brendan in the shin, I've never kicked <laughs> Brendan in the shin, but these everyday instances of harm are actually far more common. And so the question is, do you call the police and try to send people to prison every time they harm you? No. And then once you're over being angry and like wanting to seek revenge, you know, to hurt the person who hurt you, what, what do you want then? Mm. Like, what do you want then? Maybe you want restitution. Maybe you want an acknowledgement that you were hurt. And so you want an apology. You know, maybe you'll find it beneficial that the person contribute to the community, what they've taken from others. And so it's not just about this like initial angry reaction. It's about mm -hmm. thinking more deeply and trying to like see past this idea of revenge. And so for me, I'm like, ah, I'd feel, I'd feel so violated if somebody like mugged me. I would, mm -hmm. I'd feel awful. And I don't think I'd be able to see past the revenge in the immediate, but in the long term, like, I'm sure that I would want something different. I would probably want my money back. And mm -hmm. I don't think that the criminal punishment system allows for that. I think one of the things that Kaba highlights and I mentioned earlier is she very much acknowledges that these politics are hard mm -hmm. like it's hard 
we're so conditioned to desire punishment that it's just this constant struggle, this constant evaluation of your intentions and your practices in order to be abolitionist, right? Because it's, it's like you have to allow your commitment to these values to override your feelings so that you can center community transformation rather than personal satisfaction. And that's hard. Oh, child, that's, that's a word. Like, I think in addition to what you just said, we have to let go of the notion that prisons are natural and that they actually separate the good, quote, from the bad. Um, prisons do not separate the good from the bad. Uh, like I said earlier, right, if we think about people who have caused us harm in our lives or people that we know of that do harm to, to people, and right, most of them are not in prison or jail. And that doesn't mean that they should be, right? It just mm-hmm. means that like prison does not actually, in fact, protect those of us who might be considered good, right, from those who might be considered bad. And in my opinion, um, and I guess someone would say this is a very like Afro-pessimist, you know, whatever, um, <laughs> would be that they separate like the to be enslaved, right? Or the already enslaved from the human. Mm. And if we really think about this system, right? This criminal legal, we've used this term criminal legal or criminal punishment. And depending on what organizing circle you're in, um, you might use them interchangeably, but these, this system, right, the criminal legal or criminal punishment system is the manifestation of a white supremacist anti-Black fantasy that's rooted in Judeo-Christian principles. Like, let's, let's be real about it, right? That mm-hmm. there, there's a good that meets a deserved reward, right? And a bad that necessitates punishment, eternal damnation and or death. But the reality of it is, right, none of us are wholly good or wholly bad. What helps me really in thinking about my politics when things get hard, right, is how all of these logics are fundamentally created to oppress all of us. That too is a word. I, if you all are like Afro-pessimist, what now, the to be enslaved and the human, mm-hmm. just check out our episode <laughs> on Afro-pessimism you know. and that will help. And Afro-pessimist thought and abolition are like, they're, they're intertwined. Like they've, mm-hmm. they've kind of come up together. Right. And, and Kaba definitely shows that like, she does an excellent job with theory. She's, she's citing Frank B. Wilderson and Sadia Hartman and Fred mm-hmm. Moten and Angela Davis and June Jordan and like Audre Lorde and all of these people. And so you can just tell that she's drawing on this depth and breadth of reading, but she doesn't beat you over the head with it. Right. <laughs> Right. It's like it's one of those situations where if you've read the work that she's citing, you can connect the two. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you even if you haven't read these things, you can still understand what she's saying. You can still it still will resonate with you. Right. And then you can always go back and read those things if you were like, oh, I want to know more about the, the development of prisons or like prisons as a reform. And so it's it's really it was really cool to read this and see how theory can be used to inform people's politics and people's practices. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is just like one of the characteristics of of like black studies theory is that like they draw on real world situations. They're not just some white man's thought experiment. Right. (laughs) So, and so, you know, they're constantly like, they're constantly in a cycle of like, 
of thinking, doing, thinking, doing, and like observing all of those things. So, yeah. But I think, I think that's actually what we were talking about before is a nice little segue into our next motif. Yeah. So we're going to talk about briefly the difference between restorative justice and transformative justice. And these are kind of big words, big buzzwords now alongside abolition. You know, all of a sudden everybody's an abolitionist and they believe in restorative <laughs> justice and transformative <laughs> justice. That's my, that's my little, I guess, dig for today. Uh, but actually when people use these terms interchangeably, they are muddying up the meaning of both of them. They're actually not the same thing. Hmm. So Kaba defines transformative justice as a community process that's developed by anti-violence activists of color, in particular, who wanted to create responses to violence that do what criminal punishment systems fail to do, which is to build support and more safety for the person harmed and to figure out how the broader context was set up for this harm to happen and then how that context can be changed so that this harm is less likely to happen again. So transformative justice is not grounded in punitive justice, and it actually requires us to challenge our punitive impulses while prioritizing healing, repair, and accountability. And restorative justice is, it can be done kind of in tandem with it, but restorative justice is much more on a smaller level. Um, it's more, much more of an interpersonal level where it focuses on repairing the relationship between the person harmed and the person who committed the harm. And this process, right, of restorative justice is engaged with all parties entering with their consent and with the specific end goal in mind, right? So you're not mm. in a restorative um, justice process indefinitely at the whim of the survivor of harm. You know, this is mm -hmm. something that has a specific end goal. Um, and these processes are not arbitrarily decided like trials where you kind of bring in juries and um, they decide, you know, innocent, guilty, quote. Um, both the survivor and the person who commits harm have to agree to the endpoint and to the hard process of repair through, through restorative justice. Yeah. And I mean, it is hard. That was what she said. She was like, it's mm -hmm. hard and it sucks while you're in it. She was like, it feels awful. Right. Because it's never going to feel like it's enough. Right. You're like, yeah, it's yeah. It's not going to feel like it's enough because mm -hmm. you have to hold the other person's humanity in, in mind and in heart. Right. So it's not just, oh, you did something to me. You deserve pain. You deserve hardship. It's like, no, you deserve to have a full life too. My life was made less full by what you did to me. How can I, you know, how can we restore our relationship to each other? Mm -hmm. And how can I restore like, well, my relationship with myself, that's the work you have to do kind of outside of that space, but we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that part of the book really had me thinking about accountability and mm -hmm. how we use the phrase like the phrasing around accountability right like we often say that we should hold someone accountable and then I thought about and I think you know language is important right I thought about the way that that also sounds like it's embedded in carceral logics like mm. to hold can be to detain it can mm. you know it implies this sort of captivity where the person doesn't have agency the person being held accountable and so I think in a, I think what I notice at least in her writing for the most part, she talks about people taking accountability. Mm -hmm. 
And so there's, there's agency in that. And there's a mutual recognition of humanity, like you said, in this like restorative justice framework. You know, I think we need to live in a world where people are encouraged to take accountability for their actions rather than being incentivized not to. Right. And that's what punishment does. Punishment, the possibility of punishment incentivizes people not to admit when they were wrong Mm -hmm. and apologize and take accountability. And so I think, you know, she, she also makes that clear, right? Accountability isn't about being punitive or or, you know, admitting what you did, but it just means acknowledging the hurt and the harm that you caused another person. Right. And I think, yeah, just to underscore what you said, right? Like we live in a world that does not incentivize people to take accountability. And so a lot of times people feel forced to to hold someone accountable because, Mm. because we live in a world where it's better to just be like, oh, oh, I did that, you know, whatever, girl. But a thing that I also like to say too is that you can't hold someone accountable if they're not in community with you. Mm. And so like this, this process of accountability is dependent upon community. And furthermore, right, taking accountability, this person choosing to take accountability for their actions does not mean that they are involved in a process that strips them of everything they need uh, in order to survive because they raped you or they assaulted you or they robbed you, even though that's what you feel they deserve. I saw this being like a major issue in Black queer organizing circles when I was living in New York City, where these were Black people who were organizers, who were activists, who were like, they didn't take seriously the notion that we talked about earlier, right? That activism and organizing and abolition, right, are not about your fucking feelings, right? (laughs) It's, It's... Activism and organizing spaces, and I want to say this, um, and you know, if you disagree with me, feel free to hit me up. They're not necessarily healing spaces, Mm. right? These are not the spaces to work out your traumas around abandonment. These are not the spaces to work out your need to feel powerful so you exert a carceral process over someone who harmed you, Mm. right? You, if that is a need that you have and a desire that you have, take that elsewhere, there are healing spaces where you can work through these things, right? Abolition requires a decentering of the ego and of the self. And so in my own personal practice uh, as an interpersonal violence survivor, I have to consider in moments where I'm feeling very vengeful, right? Why do I see myself on such a high pedestal that I think someone should suffer in an especially cruel way because they harmed me? And then I think, okay, what do I truly want for myself and for the other person after I've been harmed? Usually uh, at the core of it all, um, especially if I've been harmed um, sexually in the times that I have been harmed sexually, right? It's just that I want to restore my relationship with myself. I want my bodily integrity back. Mm. And the person who harmed me being destitute, being without friends, not being able to see their family, not being able to do things does not give me my bodily integrity back, right? It doesn't lessen the symptoms of PTSD. It doesn't help me sleep at night. All it does is compound the harm for them and it doesn't help them understand how to not um, reproduce this harm unto others. And so usually that's what I want for them, right? Is that they'll not harm someone else in this way. And so the only way for this to really come about is through a process where they reflect on their behavior and witness the harm that is causing me. And a lot of restorative justice processes like allow that kind of act of witnessing 
with mm. the repair. Yeah, I mean, this text really got me thinking about thinking about so many things, like mm-hmm. not just the themes that we're talking about in the episode, but also just broadly what justice means. People often conceive of capital punishment as justice, you know, because it because it rebalances the scales, right? This the literal like justice is often represented by this mm-hmm. blind by the blindfolded woman with, you know, holding scales and a sword, I think. And so it's like this idea of capital punishment or other kinds of punishment rebalancing the scales, an eye for an eye, a life for a life. But it's like what in in what way is balance restored when a child is taken from her family because mm-hmm. she's having difficulty in school? Mm-hmm. You know, how is it that how is it just that a person who steals food from a grocery store loses their connections or ability to make a living? And so, and so these ideas of like punishment and vengeance and retribution, they're just so ingrained in us that a lot of the time we can't even see that it actually contradicts our values and beliefs. Like mm-hmm. this, this, this metting out of justice, it doesn't create just conditions, right? It doesn't create a world in which violence is unthinkable like that's the real balance that the scales of justice should be seeking right is like justice should mean creating just conditions so everybody can live safe happy lives and that's not what that's not what prisons do y'all that's not what police do that's not it's not um and also if we think about this through a racialized lens, right? And we think about capital punishment. If we, okay, want to say this person killed someone and deserves to die, right? But if we think about how capital punishment is um, exacted through our current system where a disproportionate number of Black men are killed, and then after they die, people are like, oh, wait, we did some DNA tests and we found out that he was innocent. And everybody's like, Oops. Oh, oh, well, a, a miscarriage of justice. The system mm. is broken, right? Um, we need to fix the system. And it's like, no, like capital punishment as a form of punishment was perfected through slavery, right? It was like, oh, right. You know, like these forms, these extreme forms of punishment where if you steal and you have to lose a part of your life, right? That was perfected through um, capitalist forms of extraction but also like slavery um and we have to really think about that when we think about reform like prison is the reform for slavery mm. Whew, that like, is how are we gonna keep performing right yeah how are we gonna keep performing slavery y'all i don't, I don't know. <laughs> they found a way they found a way <laughs> and i mean and then people think that life sentences are more humane quote-unquote than capital punishment and it's like that's that's reform too right that's a reform you're keeping someone in prison for the rest of their life they're keep you're keeping them from other people from human connections for their entire lives and it's not just folks don't just don't think that it is just people who have committed atrocious like atrocities okay right. it's not that's the, not right? the majority of people who are that's prison. not the people who are who are in prison and those are not the people who are facing life sentences. I was just hearing about, uh, who was, I I forget the woman's name, but Donald Trump actually like granted her clemency. Um, (laughs) But she was like a great grandmother who had a drug charge. And because of, you know, how the, 
how the laws around sentencing work. She, she was sentenced to like 40 years in prison, but she was already say 75 years old. Okay. I'm, I'm getting all of the details of this mixed up, but it's like you get sentenced to 60 years in prison and you're 75 years old. And they're like, well, that's just standard, but that's a life sentence. That person is going to be in prison until they die. And that is essentially capital punishment. So anyway, I'll think about this. Think about the way that like this, this like criminal legal systems rhetoric works in order to make Mm -hmm. us think that they're keeping us safe and secure when they're actually just trying to kill people for profit, which is weird. Big weird. weird. (laughs) Speaking of safety and security, I think that that was one of our next like set of terms that we wanted to talk about. Right. um, And something that we thought was really important to stress. Yeah. I I actually heard uh, Miriam Kaba talk about this on a podcast and it just really, really got me thinking that one. I was just for days, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about the way that we conflate safety and security, Mm -hmm. right? Or really we confuse security for safety, right? Like security is something that is tied up in military and carceral logics, right? Mm -hmm. They are something that you do. They're the things that you do to defend yourself. And in particular to defend property, which is, you know, what a capitalist society loves. They love personal private property, So security is things like the locks on your doors or the pepper spray that you carry or the police who patrol the streets. But the irony is that if you need these forms of security, it's because you're not safe, Period. right? Mm. Like the majority of us don't live in places where we experience true safety because true safety would be not facing these threats and not having to carry pepper spray around. And so we think that the police are making us safe, but they don't. We, and, and, and Black people in like impoverished communities and segregated communities absolutely know that the police do not keep you safe. And in most cases, they put you in danger. Mm-hmm. They, they put you in danger. And so part of that is just like the way capitalism and white supremacy has just produced this idea of what's mine is mine. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the past villages, communities, tribes, they shared everything. There wouldn't be this idea of theft if everything was communal. And so she, she has this short story, um, this like little short story, Mm -hmm. a short piece of fiction that I found really instructive, right? It was all about imagining, imagining what this, what this world could look like if we centered safety instead of security, right? And that conflation of safety and security actually limits our imagination. So we should be asking ourselves, and I keep, I keep like saying the same question in different ways, but like, what can we do to create a society where people are safe and where people don't require security? And so what we know is that for a lot of people, police presence doesn't do that. It doesn't make their community safer. It makes it more dangerous. Absolutely. And like, and again, security is something that as long as we have these kind of these other forms of oppression, like white supremacy, capitalism, anti-blackness, ableism, ableism, et cetera, right? We're going to need security in order to create conditions, quote, create conditions of safety. Mm. But 
again, that's not, I don't think that safety and security can really coexist in, in some ways. And yeah, the short fiction piece that Alyssa's were talking about in the book is called Justice, a short story. And I, I was like, yes, I love this. Um, <laughs> and just because I'm a nerd, right? And so I, <laughs> I love the way that fiction allows us to imagine. Um, and, and this is like, I'm going to create a world, the world that we want. Um, and the world that we want to live towards and like, and actually ask the question that everybody asks when it comes to when they doubt abolition, right? What happens when someone dies? Mm. Right? What happens when someone is murdered? And think about a world that deals with murder. Um, and to your last point, right? I, I often think about how people justify police and policing institutions with the cry, you know, what about protecting survivors of violence? And it's often because they spend hours watching Law and Order SVU. I feel attacked. And- <laughs> I've watched every episode of every I'll, season. <laughs> you know, I mean, cop shows also help legitim- legitimate yes. the police. Um, so I... I don't know. For me, I can't really watch shows like that. I used to watch CSI, I think, for the science, but SVU, I, I just, <laughs> I couldn't get, I couldn't get with SVU because I'm like, these are real stories, even though they pretend like yeah. they're not. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, the reality of it is that police and policing institutions actually do not make survivors safer. They often compound harm. So, if you are raped or assaulted, you have to first prove that that shit happened to you. Right? You're poked, you're prodded, you're scraped, and you're handled in different forensic um, and police examinations. Right? Then you're questioned by police officers who are often abusive themselves, who are often um, people who violate themselves. Or if you are, there was a case of a few years back, a 14-year-old Black girl who called the police because she had been raped and the police officers upon the scene raped her. Um, oh I, was in, I was in New York City. Um, and so most of the time what happens is you'll be told that there's not enough evidence in the eyes of the state to make you a victim of a crime. And so if you are one of the few who your case gets taken up by district attorney and it moves to a trial, right, you are forced to retell what happens to you or what happened to you repeatedly, right? You do not get to determine how the quote perpetrator is punished Right. You exchange your own power and autonomy over your body and, and how you address your healing for what's best, quote, for the state. And the person who harmed you most of the time will receive no consequences or punishment. So if convicted, right, they will be subjected to the cruel and humane conditions of incarceration with no guarantee that they won't harm someone else. And we've been taught, though, that this system is best and that it makes the most sense. But truly ask yourself, like, does it like really, truly does Mm -hmm. it make sense? Um, And I've witnessed many black women survivors who've reported their violation only to be gaslit and told that the shit they experienced wasn't harm. It's like, oh, aren't you used to this? Like, isn't this just, you know, I've, I've heard a survivor tell me that that's what a police officer was just like, well, I mean don't you work at a strip club? So like, isn't that kind of something to be expected? Oh my God. And when you think about that's who everyone tells you to run to when stuff happens to you, what do you do? Right. And there's no reform for that. There's no reform 
for that. There's no reform for Baltimore police in which they did a federal investigation. And one of the, the outputs was that there needs to be training on how to get officers to treat survivors of sexual violence like human beings and not and question them less than they question suspects. Right. There's no reform for that. There is no training that can teach a police officer how to properly address the needs of survivors of interpersonal violence. This has got to be abolished. And one of the things that I appreciate about Miriam Cobb's writing is that she is very clear. So she tells us that we have to think about policing as an entire system of harassment, violence and surveillance that keeps oppressive racial and gender hierarchies in place. Policing is about social control, like period. It's about mm-hmm. managing bodies and property without consent or community. Policing is violent. It robs us of our autonomy to determine how we show up and move through this world. Right? Abolition as a practice and as a political strategy is us taking back our responsibility to care for ourselves and for each other. Abolition is actually reclaiming our power. Mm. Love that. I love that idea of like, it's us taking back our responsibilities to each other. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's what folks need to hear, need to know. Yeah. Instead of Recognize. saying, oh, the state is going to take care of me or the state is going to make mm-hmm. sure everything's all good. And it's like, no, we keep us safe. We yep. keep us safe. So those were our three themes. I think that there were so many things that I liked about this book. I think you can really see how widely and deeply she reads. Mm-hmm. I think another thing that I really like, and that's very clear, is that this is not a, you know, one of those reactionary books. <laughs> reactionary might not be the right word. Um, yeah, hot take, oh, a book. Yeah, the, it's not a hot take. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly the word I was looking for. It's not a hot take that someone wrote you know, in response to capitalize on like a particular historical moment. Like she's been writing about Mm -hmm. this for years and that shows in the repetition of our society, but it also, because like a lot of her stories are familiar. You're like, she might've been writing about something that happened seven years ago, but you're like, wait, this happened again. This is still happening. Mm. Um, So it definitely shows that there's like these repetitions in society, but also the persistence of these ideas and the importance of these ideas. And then I think another thing that I really liked about this book is that it's, it's an invitation, right? Mm -hmm. It's, you know, she's firm, but she does this really good job of questioning the things and the ideas that, that I take for granted, I think. So, you know, reading this was like, (laughs) it was like the time I, I learned in undergrad that, that gender is a social construction. Like I remember having that same, like, what? moment just like (laughs) mind blown so you know I I'm really taking the time to to reflect on how to incorporate these these ideas into my relationships into my teaching and and all of these things and I think that's that's a good first step like literally to change society we have to change ourselves so we must be changed and we must be changed by it right yes to change society we must change ourselves I think so much of of the hot take or things that you that you said are like reactionary, right? It's, it's so much of a reaching out and so much of like abolition as she makes clear in this work, right? Is that it is reflective, 
constant state of reflection. Mm -hmm. And I think this book is powerful and it's approachable for everyone. And I even think for folks like me, who've been practicing abolition for a hot second, been thinking about how to really put these things in our communities, we'll still learn a lot. To that note, right? I want to say that like Kaba tells us that nothing that is worth doing is worth doing alone. So you cannot practice abolition or really any other political cause uh, in isolation. You must be connected to a group. And I can assure you that there is no problem under the sun that people are not already organizing under. And if you don't know who's doing the work, you gotta, you better find out, honey. So find a political home and do the work and you will fail. You will fail. You will fuck up inevitably, but learn from that and keep going and I really love the way that Kaba framed it, where she says, changing everything might sound daunting, but it means that there are actually so many places to start. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. I love that. I was like, yes, turn it around, <laughs> turn it around for us. Yes. <laughs> love to see it. Yeah. I, uh, it was, it was, it was a really good book. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, she also talks a lot about hope. And I think we've talked, I think you mentioned it on the podcast and we've talked about it before, but I remember you were kind of wrestling with something that Joy James said um, about the usefulness of hope. And so Miriam Kaba calls herself a deeply hopeful person. You know, she, she says hope is a discipline and it's something that we have to practice on a daily basis. And so one of the things that I'm understanding now is that for you know, for change to happen, people have to really believe that it will happen. It's not just like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm working towards this and, and whatever, like, you need to really believe it. And if you don't believe it, then why is anyone going to believe in you, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's a conviction. It's a conviction that you have to know we will abolish the prison industrial complex. Otherwise, you'll just settle for reforms and accept change and, you know, let, let the state tackle these low hanging fruit and you'll be you'll be fine with that. But if you truly, truly believe that abolition will happen, you won't settle for those kinds of things. But anyways, after, you know, reading this, I was just thinking about what you were saying about hope. And I, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what Joy James said, because you said it was at a talk. And then, you know, where are your thoughts on hope now? <laughs> um, I'm interviewing you. <laughs> LOL. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think about what I remember I don't want to misquote the great Joy James um, girl if you ever hear this I'm sorry if I do misinterpret what you what you said um and also sorry for calling you girl like that my bad um <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh she was referring to hope as this this inactive stance that people take where they say you know I hope that the world will be a better place but they don't really do anything about it um, kind of a, really along the lines of what you're saying um, and this practice of hope that also valorizes reform as the only way that societal change can happen. So hope is an expression of a limitation of imagination, I think. Mm. And, um, which is like, I is it really, hope? yeah. Like, is it really hope if all you can see is what's already here? Um, <laughs> what's already here, but maybe hasn't reached your community yet, which I think is uh, interesting. I agree with Kaba that hope for a better world is a discipline in the sense that if this world is going to change, you have to do something about it, right? We talked about discipline earlier as kind of, you know, how we are disciplined, but 
a discipline in and of itself is a set of actions pushing you towards, you know, a goal or something like that. And Kaba also says this, where we can't be optimistic and ignore the realities of where we are, thinking that's going to get us to where we want to be. And we have to work for what we want to see in this world. And I like what you said about it being a conviction. And I think that that aligns with more of what I'm thinking about. I think for hope, I think people define hope in the way that I would define faith. Mm. In the Bible, because I grew up in the church, y'all, it's like faith without works is dead. And so I think about like faith is something that requires work, that requires attending to an, an active engagement with the present in order to believe that the future will bring something better. Um, so basically what she says about hope being a discipline, I actually am like, I that sounds more to me like faith. And what this work can look like is decolonizing, you know, I know that's a fraught term now, but like decolonizing <laughs> the mind and the spirit and the body, divesting mm-hmm. from these systems and structures that perpetuate our own oppression and the oppression of others. And we have to think about building structures in our communities that address harm, that do not expand the power of the police and policing institutions. Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that you align it with faith because actually she said that she heard a nun say that phrase that hope is a discipline. Mm-hmm. I think we should just, we should take that, take that point and just move to our next segment, which is what in the world? What? In the world. What? Truly what's going on? Um, <laughs> truly awful what's happening. things. So many awful things. Um, I know we mentioned in our last episode, we talked, we honored Micaiah Bryant. And so we went, I thought it would be good for us to circle back to talking about her story and um, and the conditions that led her, that led to her death. We also will talk about Ashley Diamond uh, in her case, and then we'll close out with cancel culture. So Micaiah Bryant was killed by Columbus, Ohio police. And um, actually on, people will say dramatically moments before the George Floyd decision was released. Um, So (laughs) in time when, you know, officers are being convicted for killing this black man, a black girl is killed by the police. And for those of you who aren't aware, Micaiah was... um, was forced to participate in what I'm calling the neo-slavery institution that is normally or commonly known as foster care. And that is what led to the conditions of her death. And there are a lot of stories out there about the facts of the police confrontation that led to her murder and also the confrontation that she had with those two women um, in which she needed to protect herself by wielding a knife. But we do know um, the truth of the matter is that Makaya's foster family did not protect her or her younger sister. Mm-hmm. And this is very common for many kids in the foster care, especially black and brown kids, queer and trans kids. And a little background, a little short lesson on the foster care system, right? The foster care system is a part of the prison industrial complex through the social services division, if you want to think about it as a complex that has divisions. Um, <laughs> and it has its roots in indigenous genocide and slavery. 
So indigenous children were kidnapped from their families and were taken to boarding schools, quote unquote, or they were adopted by white settlers um, in early colonization days and throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. And even today, you can, uh, you can adopt. Up to the 20th, up to the 20th right. century. Up to the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I feel like you could, I read something about how you could just adopt um, indigenous children. Enslaved children were taken from their families uh, and sold. And so the foster care system is rife with sexual violence, as is the prison system, right, as was slavery, as was indigenous genocide. And I don't think that we talk enough about the harm that the foster care system causes many families, particularly those who, who are black and brown. And the research reports have cited that kinship care, which is placing children in the care of their family members when they are in crisis, is actually much better for them than shuffling them through foster care. And so in the the case of the state of Ohio, Ohio actually places children in foster care at a rate that is 10% higher than the national average. Micaiah's, in Micaiah's case, right, her grandmother wanted to house her, but the state did not allow for her to intervene and provide a safe place for her granddaughters um, because she had been evicted from her home, hmm. her previous home. And so the state is directly implicated in Micaiah's death, not only because of the police murder, but also due to her and her siblings forced estrangement from their family. And if we had adequate community structures and support for Black families, Micaiah's grandmother would not have been evicted. Micaiah and her siblings would not have been in foster care. And if Micaiah were not in foster care, she would be alive today. And as a quick caveat, I will say that like foster care has provided some support for children who are in especially precarious family situations where staying with family members can put them at extreme risk for harm. So I'm going to acknowledge that, but ask, right, what are societal level and community-based supports that we can create so that children don't need to be displaced from their homes in the first place? Mm. I'm just thinking about the way, I, I read Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, and eviction is something that's cyclical and that of mm-hmm. course affects Black people and Black women, especially at, at exceptionally higher rates. And so the fact that that plays that that has played into this entire situation. And then the other thing that I think about when it comes to foster care is that these families are paid to house these children. Yep. And it's like, why are you taking away, why are you taking children away from their families because they can't afford to house and and feed them and then giving the money to other people to house and feed them? Like, make it make sense. It only makes sense through the logics of, of slavery. Like, it only makes sense if you think about it as an extension of slavery. And you're like, oh, yeah, of course. So it's ridiculous. You know? But it's, I, I, I don't want to. I, I just, I don't want to. I don't know. Like, this is. A young girl died. Like, I'm. I'm also now just thinking, like, I'm so hesitant about making it political, even though it mm-hmm. is, like. It's just awful. And I think the thing that really gets me is that people are actually out here on these internets saying that she had a knife and the the police officer had no choice. Like, what? People were trying to hurt her and she was defending herself and so she deserved to die? She deserved to be shot? 
Like, do you really think that that cop actually gave a shit about the other girl that he claimed Makaya was attacking? No. No, he was just, he was a cop with a gun who wanted to exercise his power. And what he and all cops are empowered to do is kill black people, black Mm -hmm. women, black girls, black trans people with impunity. And so you will never, never, nobody will ever get me to believe that Micaiah Bryant's murder was justified. I will never agree with the people who seem to believe that she should have paid for the sins of the state with her life and that continue to shit on her name Mm -hmm. even after she's already been buried. Black, black cis het men out here outraged about other black men black boys but then could turn around and be like well i mean she shouldn't have been out here fighting you know or or the stuff that i saw which was horrendous of like these black men talking about well you know the officer didn't have to kill her maybe he could have just you know shot her in the leg shot her in her leg or shot her in the arm and it's like no um police officers right we pay billions of dollars to all these police officers you know police departments all over the country to train them on how to de-escalate you <laughs> and then and- you have a school teacher disarming a girl by taking the gun out of her hand who had shot people in school. <laughs> I saw that. And I was like, they were yeah. like, how, how did you disarm the girl? She's like, she gave me the gun. The way, but the conditions that made that possible is I guarantee mm-hmm. you that teacher had a relationship with that girl. Mm. I guarantee you, she knew what to say to that girl to say, you know what? This is not okay. Hand me that gun. Police mm-hmm. officers are not members of our community. They're not trained to teach people who, com- who do harm, commit crimes, right? And to see them as members of a community that can be spoken to, unless, okay, again, unless they're white men who are doing horrible things, mm-hmm. right? It's like police officers are not members. When I say police officers are not members of our community, that's what I mean, right? Police officer cannot have a conversation with me based on a relationship like that is not happening like that's not happening um and that's not to say we think oh the police officers should be trained to be part of the community and have conversations yeah with us. no no that's not what we're saying no no because we're, we're done <laughs> saying we're done we've, we've been there done that and because of how policing is constructed there's no way to do that right through reform just abolish it and let's make something new in, in its place, right? Let's take all these billions of dollars and change the conditions in which people live so we can do something new. So again, Micaiah, we just lift your name and we honor you and we are going to honor you and we're going to stand against people who are trying to, we're trying to continue anti-Black violence against you even after death. Um, another person that I want to bring to our listeners' attention, right, is the pressing case of Ashley Diamond. Ashley Diamond is a Black trans woman, activist, and organizer who is currently incarcerated in Georgia. And Ashley's, one of Ashley's um, 
most famous contacts with the police was in 2012. Um, she was incarcerated in Georgia prison without access to her hormones. And she was frequently assaulted by other incarcerated folks and prison guards. And after three years of enduring that violence, she sued the Georgia Department of Corrections for equitable healthcare access. And the U.S. Supreme Court decided that hormone therapy would be treated like other medications in prisons. So her case and winning the winning of her case allowed for trans and intersex incarcerated people to continue to access their harm, their hormones while incarcerated. So when we say black women be breaking down doors for folks. That's what we're doors. doors, right? Doors. And especially Black trans women. Unfortunately, in 2019, Ashley was re-entered due to a technical parole violation. Um, and so now she is in captivity at a men's prison in solitary confinement. Because she is a woman in a men's prison, she is an extreme danger and is particularly vulnerable to sexual violence. So Ashley needs your support as she and her legal team fight for her release from prison. Please donate, write letters of support, and sign the petition that we will have linked um, in the ep- episode description. And I want to like say this to all of us, right? Not only are prisons and jails violent places just in general for society at large, but they are especially violent for trans, intersex, and gender variant people. Often people are placed in prisons that do not align with who they are. Right. Mm -hmm. Based on whatever sex they were assigned at birth. Um, And policing reinforces white supremacist notions of gender, which are rooted in slavery and colonialism. And if you want to read more about that, Andrea Ritchie in her book, Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, explains in great detail. It's a a really clear book, too, um, of exactly how prisons and policing are inherently transphobic institutions. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I just look at the dates. 2015, she sued the Department of Corrections. Mm-hmm. And 2019, four years later, she's re-entered into prison. Like, I, d- I don't know why she was incarcerated in the first place. That doesn't matter. But the fact that she has been on parole or on probation for all of this time Mm -hmm. is just like exacerbating the harm. It's exacerbating the imprisonment. People think that, that your contact with, with, with like the prison system is over once you get out, but it's not, it's not, it's not like people will, you have your probation officer and then, Mm -hmm. or your parole officer and you have to check in with them and the police can drop by anytime that they want to and Mm -hmm. check in on you and, make up a violation or find a violation just to throw you back into prison. So getting out of prison doesn't end your contact with the police and the fact that she was like, that she, that this is something that she was still facing years after the fact should just like show to you how unjust the system is. Literally, It's not, people are like, Oh, it's just one year in prison. It's just two years in prison. Mm -hmm. It's two years in prison, but then it's five years of probation and, 10 years of being harassed by the police like it it's a long time even a a year is a long everything is it's a long time that no nobody should be in prison exactly like any amount of time and and again thinking about the expansion of police power right abolishing prison is not just saying okay let's shut down these jails and then give people ankle monitors 
And that's how mm-hmm. we'll keep people safe, right? It's like, no, 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 no. That is an expansion of a system, right? That's a, that is an invasion of people's bodily autonomy in their lives. Um, so we have to get more creative out. Like if we're addressing harm, let's do that. Let's not continue to punish people long after they have suffered, right? Because every, everybody suffers in prison. I don't, I don't care. Everyone suffers in prison. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, I think we wanted to discuss that, the issue that's often kind of discussed in, in regards to abolition, mm-hmm. cancel culture, the, 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 crisis of can, <laughs> the crisis of cancel culture, the cancel culture crisis. Um, it's not a crisis, y'all. Oh man, cancel culture is not a crisis. Um, but if you ask like Fox News, it's very which, much yes. You know, I was forced to watch the other day. Oh um, no, <laughs> cancel cancel culture and critical race theory taught in schools is a crisis. Um. It is. <laughs> this the guy, the announcer, was really just like, eventually, it's going to get to the point where white straight men will not be allowed to speak at all. If we keep following wokeism, that's what they call it, wokeism. No, not wokeism. And <laughs> white straight men will not be able to speak at all. And I was there sitting there like, I mean. <laughs> but the thing is, like, it's like, y'all, they, they really just see things through their lens. It's like, actually, that's not at all what, like, Black feminist principles would be about. Mm-hmm. Not at all. But, like, because that's how society would be if the tables were turned in your, in, like, the way you've structured a society then yeah, that's what would happen. So come on over here with us. I mean, what else do y'all... And then the other question is, like, what else do y'all got to say? Like, <laughs> I mean, that was my response. Like, I mean, what, what else do y'all have to say? Like, what haven't we heard? Um, I'm here trying to intellectualize it. I know. You're just being... <laughs> I'm just like, what else do y'all have to say? But I'm being cheeky, though. I'm clearly no, I cheeky. know you are. <laughs> I wish I, I would like to be more cheeky. Uh, cheekier? I don't know. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Speaking of looking things up, Merriam-Webster defined canceling as a means to, quote, withdraw one's support for someone, such as a celebrity or something such as a company, publicly and especially on social media. Wow. I didn't even know it made it to the dictionary. Oh, yeah, of course. Wow. If they're talking about it on Fox News. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> It has to be in the dictionary. Y'all, okay. Consequences is not canceling. If you use your social media platform to harm people, then being deplatformed, that may be a logical consequence of that abuse of power. Like, we need to set boundaries around what people are able to use said power for. Mm-hmm. And accountability to your community is part of having that power. And so taking away a platform that you've abused is not a punishment. It's a consequence. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's more nuance to that. Obviously, I'm not saying that's always 100% the case. Because then there's the question is of, you know, am I taking away someone's ability to be living, yeah. feed themselves? However, when most of these celebrities and politicians and companies say they were canceled they were not critique is not canceling Mm -mm. consequences is not canceling critique is not canceling Mm -mm. 
And there's a video that we posted. The source is eluding me right now. But the creator of that video, she was like, saying that you've been canceled is actually a technique to mobilize your fans and get you more attention and more money. Sarah Silverman did it. Kevin Hart did it. Steve Harvey did it. Steve Harvey did it. And what happens is that these people, they bounce back. They bounce back, especially when they hold power, power in terms of class or gender or race. And so this whole concept of like calling out cancel culture is actually just being used to silence and trivialize critique by and abuses against marginalized people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know what? Let's talk about what really cancels people. What really can what really cancels people, Alyssa? <laughs> what really cancels people is like not having the financial the financial resources to support your family. What really cancels people is being imprisoned. Mm -hmm. Because you're imprisoned and now you're permanently trapped in a cycle of interactions with the state where all roads lead to incarceration. White supremacy and colonialism literally tried to cancel whole cultures. <laughs> like, Yo. what is genocide? What is <laughs> assimilation? What is enslavement? What is resource extraction? But trying to cancel people. So I, all of this to say, just like miss me with your I was canceled because people on Twitter were calling me a turf. Like, no, no. Have you lost your connection with your family and your community? Did you lose the ability to earn an income and provide for your basic needs? If not, then gue. <laughs> gue. <laughs> like if you were canceled, we'd never have heard from you again. And in most cases, the people who say that they've been canceled, I kind of wish that we wouldn't. Like instead you're doing a whole interview in The Guardian and calling yourself canceled. Make it make sense. I mean... <laughs> Make it make sense. I think if we're thinking um, for real, cancel culture is not a thing. Black cishet men who make music. I mean, you know, Chris Brown. People still holding on to Chris Brown for their life. People holding on to R. Kelly for their life. And they think it's contrarian to play his music. And they're like, you know, yeah, it's, it's PC to not listen to R. Kelly. So we're going to be contrarian and continue to play his music. And it's like, um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's PC to, anyway, you know, that all that aside, I think cancel culture, what it does, in fact, if we think about how, how that term, people who have power use it to silence marginalized people. I think on the flip side, when a marginalized person is the is the the one that you point to to be canceled particularly mm -hmm. thinking about black trans people in general right and thinking about like black trans people who are accused of doing different types of harm who are then canceled who actually do lose community right the ability to earn income the ability to provide for themselves and then get caught up in these carceral systems as a result of being canceled that is when cancel culture works. Cancel culture works when we're throwing it at the people who are already canceled by society anyway. Like that's when it works. Mm -hmm. That's when it, that's mm -hmm. when it really, it, it compounds the harm. Um, but 
cancel culture as a form of wokeism. I'm gonna reclaim that term from Fox <laughs> News as a t- as a consequence of wokeism. For sure, is not it's not a real thing. But yeah, I mean, you're completely right. The people I'm thinking recently about what happened with Darkest You mm-hmm. uh, on Instagram. Uh, that was an attempt to to cancel someone, a very young person who has a very important platform, a platform that is very important to a lot of dark-skinned Black women and someone who has a variety of privileges in terms of aesthetics, we'll say, attempted cancellation in the form of having followers report Darkest Hue's account and trying to get the account closed down. Yeah. And it's like, and it's like, because this person, uh, I called you out and said, hey, you're a colorist. And then you go and d- improve them right by being colorist. And that's when we talk about like feelings and emotional reactions and thinking mm. about punishment, right? Circling back to that, how you feel is not enough reason to cause harm or to compound harm, right? Like mm. your feelings is not enough, um, especially if you're in community with this person, however you choose to construe community, right? It's like, just because I am angry doesn't mean that I need to get online and tell, and tell everybody about Alyssa kicking me. And <laughs> then, you know, and then everybody's coming for Alyssa, you know, like it's not, y'all and Alyssa now has never kicked me. Um, it was just a silly example that I came up with, but like, <laughs> like, me, that doesn't justify the response, right? If I had tens of thousands of followers and I get online and say, you know, I weaponize them essentially, like people weaponize people. Mm. And that's, that's not abolitionist. It's not. Now, I won't, say, I won't say if we're thinking about different power differentials, like if a Black person comes online and says, this person who's not Black harms me, that, that might be a case-by-case thing, right? That might be a case-by-case situation, but for the most part, right? It's not, cancel culture does not work to protect Black people, especially mm. Black women, especially Black trans people. And so I want to make sure I underscore that. Yes, like, I, I, think, I think the idea of there being some kind of, I think that's the problem with laws, right? Is that mm-hmm. there's some kind of universal applicability and the whole idea of the university, uh, of the university, oh, <laughs> not too. Oh. the whole idea of the universal <laughs> <Sub> is tied, <laughs> <laughs> the whole idea of the universal is tied up in white supremacist culture. Mm-hmm. So we know that you can't have one law or one situation and have it apply to every person in every situation. It's always a case by case basis. And what we have to stick to our our values and our principles punto Mm. mic drop you know (laughs) mic drop (laughs) right our values and our principles are so important so we want to thank you all for listening in line with our (laughs) values and principles we are so appreciative that you are here with us and you're rocking with us still uh this episode was produced by us Alyssa james and brendan tines our intern is Minkunte Whaley, and the podcast is distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast 
is generously funded by the Racial Justice Mini Grant Program at Columbia University, which is funded through a partnership with the Office of University Life, the Office of the Vice Provost for Faculty Advancement, and the Institute for Religion, Culture, and Public Life. Further funding has been provided by grants from the Office for Academic Diversity and Inclusion and the Arts and Science Graduate Council and donations from listeners just like you. Like you. Thank you all (laughs) so much for your support. Another thing that we appreciate from you, ratings and reviews on your chosen platform. It helps them know that our podcast is fire, so they recommend us to more people. You can also head to ZorasDaughters.com to find transcripts for the episodes, our bios, contact info, and ways to support the podcast. I can only do one Patois word per episode, so that's why you didn't get fire in the way that I did it last time. <laughs> But follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore Daughters. We're working on some really cool social media things. So just keep your eye out for that. Yes, yes, yes. And until next time, remember, we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye. Mom. Mom. <laughs> <laughs>